Welcome back to Leverage Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ari Mizell. And I'm Nick Sonnenberg. And today we have a very special guest, our friend, Matthew Breimer. Welcome. Good to be here. Thanks yeah, for having me. So, uh, Nick just informed Matt that he's, he's, he's a bigger deal than he realized. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> talk about uh, <laughs> talk about ridiculousness. Uh, yeah, I just showed Matt that he's on the list of the up-and-coming Gen Y innovators um, after Zuckerberg, Moskowitz, uh, Blake Ross, and then you're fourth. Okay. And you didn't even realize that you're on this crazy list. So. Gen Y, huh? huh? How old are you? 30. Is that? I'm 34. That you're, you're Gen Y, too. You're on the cutoff. I think I'm Gen X. No. You always try to be. I don't want to be a millennial. He likes, he likes, he, he's always I think Gen, Gen Y and millennial, I think, are synonymous. Okay, yeah. good. All right, that makes, that makes more sense. I feel more like a Gen X, okay? I remember not having a cell phone. Yeah. Well, you have four kids, so you mean you can choose right. which generation you want to right. be. Right. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> so, anyway, so um, Matt, it's really awesome to have you in today. Thank you. So, Matt, mm-hmm. Matt is one of the co founders of General Assembly. So, for those who don't know, why don't you tell us what General Assembly is first? Let's start with that. Sure. Um, so, General Assembly is a global educational institution. Uh, we think of ourselves as kind of a vocational school for the digital economy. Uh, so we have campuses, we have physical campuses in uh, 20-something cities around the world now. And what we provide is um, really hands-on, very project-based uh, and outcome-oriented education uh, that's focused on the skills needed for to be successful in the 21st century. So we have uh, both offline programs and online programs as well, all around topics like web development and coding, user experience design, data science, digital marketing, um, and these sort of things that are, you know, typically not taught in traditional college settings, not uh, traditionally as focused on higher ed, but that are very, very in demand and very useful in today's world. Uh, and then we also work with employers in a big way too. Uh, employers can can hire uh, graduates out of General Assembly. We have now tens of thousands of, of graduates that have come out of our courses in different cities around the world um, that employees kind of have, sorry, that employers have access to uh, to increase their their talent. Uh, and then we also do um, quite a bit of um, enterprise corporate training. So we'll actually go into large organizations and help um, provide, you know, digital literacy training. Um, so it's been a uh, definitely a passion project and a labor of love um, and, a, and a, you know, thriving business. We started in 20, started in 2010, launched in 2011 with our first campus in New York. Um, and now we've, we've expanded uh, all over the world. So it's always, a, always a learning process for us as well. I mean, General Assembly has a special place in my heart. Well, first of all, it's a brilliant business idea. You know, the people that got rich in the gold rush were the ones that sold the shovels. And that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of what, you know, you're, you're, good you're analogy. Teaching, you know, but you're, you know, it, it, at this point in time, you're giving people the tools to build shit that they need to be building, you know, like technology. Mm-hmm is advancing so much, you're giving people the tools that they need, just like people in the gold rush got rich by selling the shovels. But, you know, Ari and I met at General Assembly. It was teaching a class. And our, our iOS developer also, I met at General Assembly. Um, and when I was transitioning out of finance, I basically took like every class that you guys had to offer just to, you know, enhance my skill set and learn what I needed to learn. So, I really, really love love the company, and we're starting to now work closely 
more closely with you guys. I think we've hired a handful of people um, mm-hmm. out of some of the programs, and we're starting to do some of the assessment tests. Or, and then we, we've put people th- on our team through your courses, and we're speaking at a couple of campuses in the next month or two. All so the we're, things. we're starting it. to get involved there. Integrated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what else? Uh, and and can you talk about Daybreakers for a second, too? I know that that's another passion project of yours. Yeah. So Daybreaker. Uh, so General Assembly I've been working on since, you know, 2010. Um, Daybreaker, uh, I, I co-founded um, with a friend of mine, uh, see, in 2013, really as an art project and kind of a social experiment, um, just as an event series. Um, it was it was kind of based on, uh, based on a few different things. One, it, you're just kind of lamenting um, over traditional life in New York and how um, you know humans coming together to with music to dance in community is something that's been happening for thousands of years you know it's prehistoric it's not it's not anything new you know you can imagine <laughs> drum circles around the fire right uh, for our, you know that our, our ancestors were participating in um, but in today's world uh, we associate um, you know that kind of experience you know music and dance. Uh, typically with with dirty nightclubs, with late nights, with drugs and alcohol, mean bouncers, restrictive clothing, misogynistic <laughs> behavior, you know, the list goes on, right? And so we thought, well, what if we get to throw out all the negative things, all the all the kind of negative stuff uh, that is associated with traditional nightlife and kind of turn the whole thing on its head and only put positive um, attributes in there? And we thought, okay, well, if we're going to do that, what if rather than, you know, creating a, a really great dance party to be how you end your your day, end your night, what if instead we flipped it and it was uh, how you started your day in the morning? And so um, we just did the first one, uh, just again as an experiment, back in December of 2013. And it was snowing, and um, instead, you know, we didn't want to serve any alcohol because people are going to work afterward, right? Nobody wants to drink in the morning. So we thought, well, we'll serve green juice and coffee and tea and smoothies and snack bars. Um, and we wanted to also mix in live musicians along with uh, along with DJs and live performances. And so it was ended up being kind of a mix of like a cardio workout meets immersive theater meets uh, really kind of epic kind of Burning Man style dance party. And we just did the first one. And, you know, we treat it as an experiment. I think that's kind of an important thing. We thought, okay, uh, worst case, nobody shows up. This won't appeal to anyone. Uh, it'll be kind of awkward. And um, and we'll basically just have woken up too early one day, right? And big deal. Like the, 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 right. the, the worst case situation, the downside, you know, is pretty minimal. There's plenty of other experiments, plenty of other ideas to pursue. One morning we can, we can you know, invest here. Uh, best case, people love it and we can do more of them and we continue to, to expand this and, and just kind of see where it goes. And so we set, we didn't, we didn't put a whole lot of pressure on ourselves in the beginning. We're going to start a big business or we're going to expand to be a global mm. thing. Um, we treated it as this, this kind of experiment. And so did the first one. It was great. It worked. We had like 180 people show up um, and it had this really magic kind of positive, jovial vibe to it. And, um, and then, you know, at the end, it was over at 9 a.m. We did some closing meditation, went off to work um, and everyone then went off to their offices and just uh, we got feedback, you know, later that later that day. And then the next day is from people that they felt more creative that day. They were more productive. They were alive. They were happier. They felt like they'd accomplished something that morning, which <laughs> uh, was pretty cool. It was like a little bit of a, of a, it was a little mischief there, too. You know, it was yeah. part of their um, went in like they kind of had a secret that the other people in the office didn't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then so, you know, since then, we've um, we've expanded it now to. I think about 17 or so cities around the world. So we have 
have Daybreaker uh, events and communities happening in a bunch of different cities around the world. And we've been, um, you know, have hundreds of thousands of people who are, who are participating now. And we've been fortunate, too, to work with some really great partners and, and brands and organizations, um, both nonprofits that we support uh, and also, you know, brands like the NFL. We did a Daybreaker at the Denver Broncos Stadium um, last last year to kick off the 2016 football season, That's cool. uh, which is pretty cool. We, um, we launched Daybreaker in Shanghai uh, with uh, Clinique. We launched Daybreaker Hong Kong with Calvin Klein. Um, we worked with American Express, uh, you know, a variety of different, we've done, done some Daybreakers within Macy's stores. We've kind of like taken over Macy's wow. and turned it into kind of a, not a nightclub, but a morning club maybe. Uh, How and often it's been, are a, it's the been a cool thing. So, I mean, at this point, you know, we're doing them around the world. So every week there is a handful. Um, in New York specifically, um, it's about every two weeks. And then most other cities, it's every every three or four weeks. You know? So New you York add is, it up and it, it's, it's always more different. Yes. Yeah, so we always rove around to different locations. Mm-hmm. Um, so the theme is different. Performers are different. The basic skeleton is consistent. We always have different musicians, performers, theatrical acts, uh, closing performances, um, and the venues are, are different as well. So we kind of move around the city. Sometimes we're at um, sometimes we're at kind of nightclubs that aren't being used at six to nine in the morning. Of course, sometimes we're at concert halls. New sometimes museum. we're at uh, we're at Italy. We haven't done one at a new museum yet. Um, It'd be perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the thing is, we're, you know, in New York, we're doing um, probably like. I don't know, anywhere from like 400 to 1,000 people per wow. per morning. Um, so that is all helpful. And, and is we've it, done it on a huge boat uh, a bunch of times. So in the warmer months, we'll do uh, like a 1,000-person daybreaker morning cruise around the Manhattan Harbor awesome. and as the it, sun's it, coming up over the skyline. Is it an invite-only type of thing? Or no, anyone, anyone can, can go. go. Anyone can go. Um, one of the things I really love about daybreaker is really just the, the, how diverse it is and how it appeals to so many different audiences. You know, typically go to a, a concert or go to a nightclub or something, and it, you know, it just tends to be kind of a, a specific demographic for that particular venue or show or whatever. But at Daybreaker, um, you have people, you know, of all colors and creeds and backgrounds and ages. Um, you know, some people bring their kids and you have like four and five-year-olds just tearing it up in the dance floor. <laughs> and you have people coming in their 60s and 70s who, you know, are there, you know, some older couples who afterward will say, well, we're already up this early anyway, you know, and uh-huh. we, we don't feel comfortable, <laughs> you know, going to like some gross kind of traditional nightclub. But here we're welcomed and it's great and it's totally healthy and um, and it's cool just how it's, it's it's bringing together a community of people who are there, uh, I think, for a shared shared kind of spiritual and psychological goals, not because they look alike or because it's it's um, a certain thing that, you know, is, kind of matches with a certain demographic. But, you know, it's just this idea of waking up early, starting off your day with intention, with positivity, with a kind of a can-do attitude, Um you know, feeling feeling uh, that you're doing something good for yourself, for your mind and your body, um, and and sharing in that in the in the kind of love and positivity that Daybreaker elicits from people. You know, it's hard to go to Daybreaker and and uh, emerge. You know, an hour or two later in a bad mood, you're pretty much like guaranteed sure. to be happy, which is which is fun. It's an unusual offering too in itself, being able to well the happiness basically guarantee or happiness guarantee. Uh, so that this begs the question then: as how do you generally sort of organize your day, and how do you decide what you're going to get done and what you're going do and yeah it's a good question um so uh you know as as a as an entrepreneur um and as someone who you know always has a lot of ideas and you know very much a, a creative uh I always feel that that time is probably my most limited resource. Um, you know, I think I think you know sometimes people talk about you know, finding your you know challenge of finding your purpose and finding your you know pursuing your passion, um, which is a, a very real and worthy pursuit. Uh, I think then once you kind of know what your passions are and you found uh, 
you know, kind of how you want to show up in the world and what you want to, how you want to make a dent in the universe, so to speak. Um, then the other challenge is uh, once you have that, then it's, okay, well, you know, what do I want to build and what do I want to focus on? You know, how, how do I kind of narrow down and say no to things? It's, it's always easier to say yes to opportunities, right? When they're, when they're flowing. Uh, it's harder to, to say no, but ultimately saying no to things and, and being able to focus and hone your time um, is paramount. So, you know, when I think about my day, um, where it is today, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, very involved in General Assembly. Um, it's a, it's a part-time, part-time commitment now. I've been working on it, you know, as I said, ever since 2010. So that's still a big thread. Um, so for General Assembly, uh, doing, continuing to work there. But then I also have um, a carve-out kind of outside of my work at General Assembly every, every week for uh, other more entrepreneurial um, advisory uh, work. So I transitioned out of uh, the day-to-day at Daybreaker um, kind of in fall, I guess early fall of uh, of last year. So last year I'd been spending you know a good amount of my time on on General Assembly and also on Daybreaker, um, and I knew that in order to be able to pursue some new entrepreneurial endeavors and, and work in some new companies and kind of um, move some things forward, I knew that I couldn't just I keep adding things to my plate. You know, I'd get overwhelmed, mm-hmm. um, and I I don't think it's it's healthy to to work uh, when you're constantly overwhelmed. You know, you, you never want to even you know get to that to that point. And so I knew okay, you know, managing my professional I have to in order in order to kind of add, I need to subtract a little bit, and so felt like um, by the end of last year, the Daybreaker was in a really great place, thriving, um, strong team. Uh, my co-founder Rada, uh, who you know I, I built it with along with the team, she's now running it full time um, as CEO, and it was an opportunity for me to kind of step out of the uh, out of the day to day, and so I'm on the board now and an advisor. Um, and that transition went really well, and now I can be a, a happy champion and, and supporter of Daybreaker um, from uh, from afar. But it was, you know, it was, it was a humbling and and uh, both a humbling and exciting experience to you know kind of like let the the good ship Daybreaker sail into the sunrise. Mm-hmm. Know that there's strong leadership and good team there, and that that can move forward. Um, you know, it's like when you create when you when you created or co-created something that's your that's your baby. Um, it can be difficult to uh, to kind of like let it go and let it live on its own two feet, you know, but it's a really powerful thing. And ultimately as an entrepreneur, it's kind of what you want to be doing. You want to be creating things and building things that can, that, that you're creating things that are bigger than yourself, you know, that you can, you can let uh, out into the world and know that you've, you have a team there that can carry that vision forward and that uh, it's not reliant on you um, alone to, to manifest its, its vision into reality. So, um, you know, outside of, uh, so, so Daybreaker now, you know, an advisor. So outside of my uh, time at GA, uh, I'm advising a handful of startups, um, companies like ZZ Driggs, which is a really incredible company um, that's doing uh, subscription furniture. So working with um, really incredible uh, independent furniture design studios and fabricators around the country, all in North America, and offering a sustainable, contemporary, very well-designed, high-quality furniture um, on demand and on subscription. So kind of breaking this, this mode mm. of... Um, yeah, it was a very, very, very cool company. Yeah. Um, so breaking the mold of, of how we traditionally think about furniture consumption. Um, also advising uh, an education company called Fluent City, which is kind of doing a general assembly for language learning and cultural education. Um, I'm an advisor at Common, which my, one of my GA co-founders, Brad, started, which is kind of reimagining residential living. And then... Um, uh, working out a few new, few new concepts and kind of entrepreneurial projects as well. How do you? I mean, so how do you choose the companies that you're going to advise? Like, what excites you? You know, in terms of I guess industries, niches, whatever. Yeah. Um, so you know, I'm a I'm kind of an early stage guy at my core. So um, companies that are that are you know, relatively early stage, uh, I look for companies that who you know want to work with me. Who you know value my expertise? I don't you know I'm not just like forcing myself in a company, um, 
I look for founders and a, and and a core team that I admire and respect and that I um I, I believe in. Um, I look for teams who really have a concrete vision of the reality that they want to see. Um, I want to make sure that the the founders aren't doing it, you know, for the money, uh, but that they're doing it to change the world for the better, and that this startup this is is the vehicle by which they're um, enacting that change in the world, and that they're building a, a business that is sustainable and that is is a, a functional working business. Um, as a vehicle to do something big and awesome in the world and make an impact on people's lives, um, I look for companies that can that can uh, you know scale and, and impact a lot of people, um, either digitally or physically or whatnot. Uh, and then the other couple things is you know I look for companies that are creating experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it could be an online experience, but more more often looking looking back, it's companies that are uh, that are whose products or services generate offline experiences or experiences in the real world. And maybe the technology is a component to that, but ultimately, um, I think it should all serve you know real life real life experiences. You know, and then and then the last thing I look for is uh, is there a strong community component? You know, because that's a something I love, and I think I have mm-hmm. hopefully a little you know bit of expertise around you know after General well, Assembly and, and Daybreaker. Yeah, so, well, General Assembly, like one big differentiator, it's not just the education; it's really a. Uh, it really does have that community feeling mm-hmm. to it. You know, mm-hmm. you go to General Assembly and it's not that school feeling at all. Mm-hmm. Like no. there's yeah. collaboration. Yeah. There's And that's how it began too. Yeah, it's it's really, you guys have done a really good job with that. And, Thank you. Um, what you said before though is a good transition to another topic that I, I want to hit with you, which is the future of work. So you said when you work with people, it's, you want to make sure that it's not just about the money, they have a bigger vision. So Ari and I with the virtual assistants, well, we're calling it an outsourcing platform now, but we really feel the bigger vision is we're shaping the future of work and we're enabling people uh, to to make money and earn a living where they might not have had the opportunity before. It could be the house mom that can't work a nine to five, but she ha- she has skills and has a couple hours spread out during the day. And we allow for people to work wherever they want, whenever they want on whatever interests them. Mm-hmm. So it's like Uber for, for tasks uh, in a sense. So, um, you know, the future of work uh, with this type of mentality is, is it's a it's a big passion of ours and and something that we're really always uh, trying to get set up as best as possible for the future so I'm curious to to, to hear you know what your thoughts are on the future of work well, that is a that's a very a very large question uh, <laughs> that can probably not be summed up in like a 30 second answer um take more than 30 seconds <laughs> <laughs> I mean one there's a lot of pieces and parts that um I mean a couple of things that I, I think about uh, are the the Job growth and employer demand for skills is changing, and it's changing faster than it probably ever has before. So, you know, one example of that is the programming languages that we teach at General Assembly today um, are not going to be the programming languages that we teach at General Assembly 10 years from now. Right. And so how do we – the question is, okay, well, how do we come up with what we teach? Well, we start by talking to employers, and we talk to lots of thousands of employers, you know, who are our, our partners, um, who are hiring graduates and are supporting, you know, curriculum and whatnot. And we say, okay, you know, what, what sort of um, – what sort of roles are, are, you know, really in demand at the company? What are you looking to hire for? And we'll aggregate a lot of those insights from a bunch of different employers. So let's say it's a it's a data scientist, okay? Um, we'll talk to a lot of employers and say, okay, well, you know, what are you... What are the ideal skills and proficiencies that an ideal data scientist candidate should have? Let's say they should know these, 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 these things. They should be capable of this, blah, blah, blah. Um, we'll aggregate all of that together, and that becomes the outcome of a curriculum before we actually build the curriculum. So we know what we're driving for when we think about talent creation mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and and empowering people with, with the skills that they need. So it's really this outcome-oriented education. We start with what are employers looking for and how can we create curriculum and, an, and a really transformative 
educational experience so that when someone graduates, they're teed up for real-world opportunities and real-world skills. But what it also means is that 10 years from now, the programming languages, let's say, um, and the, the data science methodology, for example, that is going to be in demand from employers probably hasn't even been invented yet. So when we think about education, uh, our own curriculum is constantly in beta. It's constantly evolving because we always need to stay current and relevant to what is happening in the industry so that we're training people for those skills. So what that means then for the consumer, the individual, is for them, their education should always be in beta. Um, you know, you should never stop learning. You know, I think when we think about this idea of lifelong learning, um, you know, maybe a, a, a while ago that idea almost seemed maybe a little trite or, or a, a luxury, a lifelong learning. Oh, great. Yeah, that's nice. You always, you know, be able to learn things. Um, it's not a luxury. It is a necessity, though, especially in today's world. Um, industry is changing so fast. Employers demands are changing. What you what skills employers are looking for is constantly evolving. And so this idea of always, um, for, for consumers, this idea of constantly update, updating and upgrading your skill set is increasingly important and now and now paramount. You know, so when we think about, you know, what work looks like um, decades from now, honestly, I have no idea. It depends, like, you know, how what we do with, you know, AI and, and, and you know, variety of industries and kind of how we can solve the, the skills, gap, skills gap and a bunch of other things. But when we think about it, the future of work is, is necessarily aligned with the future of education. So when we think about General Assembly, we don't want we don't some ever feel that they are you know a General Assembly alum to the point that they have completed their work at GA. You know we'd love for General Assembly to be a community, to be a place, to be this educational institution where our students can come back throughout their entire lives over their careers as they need it to come back and take a class, take a workshop, learn a new skill, maybe TA a course, maybe teach a course, maybe hire some graduates. Um, but that it's it's you know that your education is always evolving and is synonymous with your career. You know, if we can do that, then then we can really provide um, learning opportunities for someone throughout their whole career uh, that are up to date with with where, where the world's going. So, you know, I think about, you know, what the future of work means. Um, it's definitely going to be changing. Um, keeping, uh, making sure that your skills are up to date is going to be paramount. Um, and, and I think that's that's going to be increasingly important. Um, I also think that uh, that people are increasingly going to be needing to take a more entrepreneurial approach to their careers. It doesn't necessarily mean everyone needs to start a company. That's not what I'm saying. Um, some people start companies. Um, most people don't start companies, but everyone, I think, needs to realize, okay, uh, this idea of staying with one company or in one industry or in one particular kind of corporate career path and riding that wave throughout your whole career, that's going away. Increasingly, there's this granularization, as I'm sure you guys encounter, of of skills and of career paths. And it's really kind of a becoming more and more of a choose-your-own-adventure uh, mm-hmm. career for everyone. Um, and, that, and that now, I think people don't feel as, uh, it doesn't feel as necessary to say, I'm only going to, I'm going to be a marketer for the rest of my career, rest of my life. Maybe, maybe not. In all likelihood, you'll do that for a while. You'll find other things that you're interested in. You'll be able to parlay some of your skills along with some new skills and turn into, you know, a new role, new opportunity, new direction. Um, but as, as skills and work becomes more granular, it means that everyone need, just needs to own their own career path and, and uh, take a more active role in choosing the skills that they want to learn and when uh, to align with their, with their career goals and also to align with where industry is going. You know, skills that you had from 10 years ago might not be as relevant anymore. And so you need to make sure that you're learning the, the, you know, new skills and, and positioning yourself for both what industry wants or the industry needs and also what you want and what makes you happy. Yep. So this is, uh, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I like the idea of that the future work is 
has to align with the future education. I think that's so important for people to understand that. I was just mm-hmm. reading, so you'll know this, my favorite website that I talk about all the time is Barking Up the Wrong Tree, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's this guy, Eric Barker, who basically distills uh, studies into like four bite-sized points. Anyway, mm-hmm. he just came out with his new book. He's going to be on the podcast soon. And I was reading it last night. And there's the one of the first things is about how valedictorians in high school pretty much without like 100% of the time do not become monetarily or like, or not sorry, not monetarily. They don't become huge successes later in life. Uh, not from a money point of view, but from like a fulfillment, like life happiness kind of view. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying in terms of the analysis was that people, the, the kids who become valedictorians basically are very good at doing what they're told, getting their grades, and they are aren't able to follow a passion. They have to be generalists because you may love math, but if you want to be a valedictorian, you also have to be good at history or you have to get good grades in history. So you have to... T- I was not the valedictorian. Right. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that was I by, by a long shot. Um, you have to be able to, in those cases, you have to be a generalist. You really can't go into one thing and you're really good at sort of following the rules, sticking in. And, and, mm-hmm. and in a lot of cases, valedictorians just get really good at delivering what the teachers want, not so much learning. Well, that's um, smart here. I mean, were you valedictorian before we bashed valedictorians? <laughs> I was not. Okay. My, 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 I mean, because we're learning a lot. My about rival you today. Yeah. on the yeah. list was Zuckerberg. Okay. That we, you didn't even realize that. I was close. <laughs> my rival and, uh, and and close friend in high school ended up um, taking it. So, but it was it was neck and neck for a while. Uh huh. Well, and how's yeah. he doing now? Uh, he's doing well. He's doing good. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, no but, no complaints. But I, I I hear that. I mean, I think you know this idea of. Um, I mean, the archetype of, of being a valedictorian means you have successfully executed. Uh, Everything you need to do um, in in the system to be successful according to uh, in, according to the the plan, right? Exactly. Right? And traditional, you know, K through twelve um, is very much a structure and a system and a zone mentally and physically, right? Um, and if you follow all the rules and and successfully achieve all of the things that have been laid out for you. Uh, you can do well, but it sounds like what you're getting is probably that mm-hmm. um, in, in many ways you're that's missing out on pursuing uh, your own direction, pursuing creativity, yeah. and pursuing being entrepreneurial, as you said, yeah. not necessarily starting a company, but having that ability to to sort of experiment and step out of the the standard line of how you do things. Yeah, and even this, I mean, you know, this is nothing new, but you know, the idea of failure, right, is like the last thing that uh, we keep in the valedictorian track. Like that's like mm-hmm. the worst thing for a valedictorian, right? Or the, it, it, more broadly, right. failure. Is um is the last thing that you want if you're if you're pursuing uh, academic success? Correct. Right. And in entrepreneurship, um, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that failure is something you should seek. Right. That would be that's absurd. Um, you have to be comfortable but, with it, though. But you need to be comfortable with it, and you need to know that experimentation is part of the game, and that there will be little failures and little successes along the way. And as long as your mm-hmm. failure, the failures, you know, tend to not be catastrophic, as long as you can, you know, run learn experiments something. and learn something, um, you know, that there's 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 a benefit there. You know, I think you have to be careful and not glorify. Failure failure too much yeah. <laughs> um, because then you get into some, you know, it's almost like, uh, um, I don't know, this idea we were chatting about, right? This idea of like a participation trophy. Um, right. If everyone who plays a sport on the team gets a participation trophy, um, everyone, yes, should be, there should be some, some benefit for um, an appeal of participating, but you shouldn't be playing the sport for the trophy. You should be playing the sport for the love of the sport and for the, the health and for the, the rigor and for the camaraderie and for the teamwork and for the game, not so that you can get a trophy. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure in Japan, um, in karate, you, they don't have different colored belts. It's like only white or black. And it's just <laughs> in the U.S. where they have all the different stripes and colors yeah. to make people feel like they're progressing. Well, yeah. and you also then have six-year-old black belts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what have you had any major failures that you've experienced and come from? Yeah, I mean, probably the, the you know, the kind of biggest um, 
like a startup professional failure that I can I point to is um, in so in college, uh, maybe sophomore junior year, uh, a couple friends and I started a social gaming startup where we were taking college rivalries and sports rivalries and building these massively multiplayer team based games online. Um, this is two thousand seven through about two thousand nine. Ran this and it was called Go Cross Campus. <laughs> um, and you can see the postmortem if you go to gocrosscampus.com. Uh-huh. Uh, you can see our um, – and we got some, got some press and built uh, – we're for a while with the largest college gaming network. And our, our game was kind of like the board game wow. risk. Wow. It's like a GeoCities website. <laughs> <laughs> okay, definitely not mobile optimized. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, this is – I remember when we, when we first launched, it was right when Facebook platform – the very first iPhone came out that summer that we were, like, building the thing and getting yeah. ready to launch. And Facebook platform just come out. And, um, and we decided not to go on Facebook platform because we weren't convinced that Facebook would be a, a big gaming platform at all, you know, and then Zynga happened. Uh, um, and then, uh, and then, you know, iPhone, we, um, we're like, well, let's see how this goes. So we built like a destination, uh, desktop only, um, you know, website where, where all these games happen. We launched tournaments between schools, between rival schools. And so it was basically taking offline rivalries and competitive competition and putting it online, tapping into those real world rivalries. Um, ended up raising almost $2 million in, in venture capital, um, mostly as college students. That's pretty uh, impressive. So you're, what, 20, year, 20 years old raising $2 million? I'm like coughing. All right. <laughs> I'm like dying over here. <laughs> yeah, to, a couple of my co-founders had, um, I guess technically were, were college graduates by then. We you know had already graduated from Yale because uh, they were one year um, above. Is that where you went? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I went to Yale for undergrad. Um, and, um, and so, you know, we, we ended up making basically every first-time founder mistake, everything from having five co-founders, which <laughs> yeah. is just way too many cooks in the kitchen, you know. Um, and one of the things from that we realized is, is looking back, you know, having five co-founders, a lot of, you know, type A personalities, um, when it came to big strategic decisions, big important decisions, we all kind of had an opinion and we all felt like, well, we're all co-founders. We all need to have a, a say, an opinion in kind of some big company decisions. Um, and we all had a slightly different opinion on what we should do or what the strategy should be. And so in trying to compromise with five people, you're basically making decisions by committee, yeah. which means that you have, you know, make a math reference. So you may have like five strong vectors going off in different directions. If you take the average of all those vectors, you get a pretty like weak you know, the vector going off in maybe one direction, but you end up making more bland decisions than you otherwise would have. And speaking of willingness to fail and risk taking, any startup, any entrepreneur, um, a new venture, you need to be taking enough risks in general. You need to be a risk, uh, you know, a kind of risk-centric organization, right? Um, and you just have to say, okay, how many risks and what are the risks and, and how, do we, how do we balance those and hedge them and yada, yada. Um, but you can't play it too safe. Because you're building something new. You're typically creating something in the world that has never been done before. You're moving quickly. Not everything's going to be perfect. You need to have a healthy amount of risk-taking. And we were making decisions that were tended to be not risky enough in any one direction. You know, we could have chosen direction A or B or C. All of them would have – all of those mm-hmm. would have been, let's say, big bets. But making this kind of muddied soup of A plus B plus C – Ended up, you know, not taking any strategic direction at all because it's kind of mishmash. And, of, and also, of time is one of the most valuable assets, right? So if you have to, you know, decisions that could be five minutes, if it's just you right. or you and a co-founder, that all of a sudden now every decision takes a day or two days. Mm-hmm. You know, and you compound that over every decision that has to be made in a, in a company, you're losing a lot of time too. Not even if you are taking a risky path, it's you're 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 wasting a lot of time too. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I think it's you know, looking back at that. You know, we, company ended up 
we ended up shutting it down like summer of 2009. Um, tried to raise some more capital in late 2008, early 2009. You know, put yourself back in that time. You know, the economy was tanking. The recession was hitting. Uh, you know, a lot of investors who, you know, previously we talked to said, oh, focus on, you know, before recession, focus on scale, focus on your product, monetize once you're big enough. Sound good. You know, our bank account was just going in one direction uh, mm-hmm. down. Um, and then and then the recession hit and a lot of the investors we're talking to um, were saying, well, we want to see some revenue, start monetizing, let's see it. And we just weren't in a position to do that. We hadn't built um, really any sort of strong monetization, you know, revenue that that uh, thing is important for running a business, apparently, <laughs> uh, that wasn't really in the cards. Um, you know, uh, good, lots of good lessons learned there. Um, and, you know, combination of, of you know, variety of, of uh, you know, kind of first time mistakes and, and, you know, poor decision making and things. Um, we tried our best. Uh, but ultimately, you know, kind of the economic climate um, and, uh, and, you know, internal strategy and decision making ended up, you know, leading to, uh, you know, a company that ended up failing. You know, we never, we didn't get acquired. We basically, you know, ran the cash, had it shut, had to shut it down. Um, which was a, a hard process to go through. You know, that was it was for a lot of us, you know, a lot of the team, it was our first real startup and it was our it was our baby. It was our, you know, there was our blood, sweat and tears in there as part of our soul in that company. Um, and it was, you know, if anyone's an entrepreneur, you know, listening in, I mean, you know how much how much of you of some of your of your DNA is in is in you know your your company and so uh, it's something you talk about all the time with friends and family and it's it's a love right and so when it fails it feels like a part of you has failed it feels like a part of you has kind of died inside mm-hmm. or something and that's a, a tough experience to go through and you have to re, you have to realize that you've that this company whether it succeeds or fails is not you. It is something that is greater than you. It is something separate from you. It is something you've manifested and created yeah. and put out into the world. And it may succeed or it may fail, but life is long and there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of ideas and there's a lot of things that you can create with your own two hands and mind and heart. Um, and that there's going to be successes and failures along the way. Not everything is going to be, is going to work. And, and you have to just tell yourself, okay, I'm not a failure as a person. This company failed. Um, and the story looking back, you know, the story only makes sense looking back. When you're in the moment of, of that, you know, difficult situation, you realize, man, you know, this company has failed. What am I going to do? Should I even be an entrepreneur at all? It's hard to know what's ahead. Um, however, looking back now in 2017, it was because of that failure. It was because of the failure of Go Cross Campus that put that company to bed um, and it gave me the opportunity and the freedom to say, okay, uh, I still want to be an entrepreneur. Um, a lot of lessons learned here. I want to do something bigger and better, more successful um, using the lessons learned that I've, I've gotten from from this company and go do something else. I don't know what that's going to be, but um, I felt like, okay, you know, whatever, whatever didn't kill me made me stronger, right? So there's, there's uh, <laughs> hopefully I will be more successful the next time after having been through this up and down roller coaster and ultimately crash of, uh, of the previous startup. So I moved to New York, uh, started to kind of immerse myself in the startup and tech ecosystem here, not knowing many people when I started when I moved here, but just threw myself into the ring, um, started building relationships, started introducing people, just tried to take, you know, kind of a helpful attitude. Who can I connect? Uh, who can I, what introductions or who can I connect up um, with other people that I meet that it might be mutually beneficial for them and not asking for something in return. I just tried to put out as much good karma into the world as I could and try to be helpful, try to be useful and just try to be humble and try to learn. And it was through that process that I started to meet a lot of interesting people and started to see the need in New York. This is now 2009, 2010. Started to see the need for some sort of physical hub, a, com- a physical community and kind of uh, what could be like a nucleus for the startup and tech ecosystem in New York, a place that could be a, a place of learning, a place of collaboration, a place of social community um, on the heels of, of, you know, this last startup failure. Uh, and it was that process and realizing this opportunity, this vision that, of course, ended up leading directly to the creation of General Assembly. So looking back, if that social gaming company had succeeded at all, General Assembly would not exist. Daybreak would not right. exist. Um, 
I'm glad I'm in the worlds that I'm in now. You know, I don't think I'm meant to be in social gaming. Yeah, so I, I didn't that realize. needed to fail in order for new things to, to we, emerge. We really, I guess, uh, met then at the very beginning of General Assembly. It must have been like 2011 or something. Oh, I mean, they still had yeah. a big co-working element. When it, it was, yeah, when it, was, it was really. So one thing that I'm interested in, and I think one thing to... Um, one thing that I think Ari and I did well with this company is we we really built a strong MVP in a smart way with free tools and stuff. General Assembly, obviously, now it has physical spaces. Obviously, an MVP for General Assembly looks totally different than an MVP, minimum viable product for everyone listening that doesn't know MVP. Um, obviously, it look it's it's got to look different than what we had to do. So was your uh, minimum viable product... Uh, like an online rem- online education platform at first before you did a physical location? Or how, how did you go mm-hmm. about the MVP of General Assembly? Yeah, so we didn't start doing online education until very much once we were opened and, and we're in physical form and offering offering offline classes and workshops and courses. Um, you know, for us, when we first started General Assembly, we didn't really know what it would become. Um, well, you must have had to raise a lot of a lot of money up front, right? Because physical location's got to be super expensive. So we were able to, so we raised a Series A about nine months after we had launched our physical campus. And we were as a series A saying, okay, we're going to build a, a global educational institution. Um, when we launched, when we first started General Assembly, though, we, we got some, um, managed to get a grant from the city of New York through the Economic Development Corporation. Um, we got some corporate sponsors uh, on board, um, kind of sold them the dream. And we pre-sold um, definitely a, a feat of, of successful community building. But we pre-sold all of the inaugural uh, desks, desk memberships, and a bunch of the communal memberships as well for General Assembly before we opened. And so it was this little bit of a kind of cat and mouse game where we're going around meeting all these great startups and entrepreneurs and saying, look, we're building this amazing place. We're going to have more startups headquartered out of General Assembly back when we were doing co-working than any other location um, in New York City. And it's going to be this educational community and we're not going to make any investments. We're not going to take any equity. It's going to be about the people, you know, not about the financial upside. Um, and we were able to kind of just bring together this amazing crew of, of startups and entrepreneurs um, who were willing to kind of put somebody down and commit to being members and having desk space at GA. Uh, and it was by getting all that together, all those commitments together, plus some corporate sponsors and, and the grant from the EDC, they were able to launch our first campus in New York. So I would say for GA, our MVP, you know, minimum viable product was our first campus in New York. Uh, if you look at other physical places, look at hospitality, right? Look at restaurants. Um, a restaurant doesn't say, well, I'll start it. I'll build an app before I build a restaurant. <laughs> a hotel doesn't say, oh, well, we'll get, we'll make a, mm-hmm. offer a magazine before. No, like, right. Sometimes the MVP bar, when you're creating something in real life, you can't, you know, can't kind of half-ass it. Yeah. You can't have all the furniture be Ikea if you want to build and create a space that feels well-designed and functional and beautiful. You have to start with a certain bar, you know. And so we launched General Assembly um, with those pieces. And once we got into it, we, we started, you know, we, we built a classroom and we started offering short-form classes and workshops and basically bringing um, – colleagues and friends and acquaintances who are practitioners in particular fields. So bringing in software engineers to teach web development, bringing in user experience designers to teach good, good mobile and web design, you know, bringing in data science to data scientists to teach data science. It was by that, through that process, that we realized, wow, we have a lot of demand, a lot of interest in people who want to learn these 21st century skills. Um, and they're willing to learn them in real life. Uh, they want to learn them in real life. You know, now we do a lot of online education as well, but our, our bread and butter is still in-person, hands-on, really transformative education, you know? And what we realized is that when people are learning hard stuff, uh, turns out they people like to be around people. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's a certain aspect of um, of learning something in an environment with your peers in a community setting where you can turn over and ask someone a question. How does this work? Or can you help me out on this yeah. thing? You can work on projects together. Most, you know, increasingly you're seeing more, 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 more of American become freelancers and maybe start to work remotely or whatever. But at the end of the day, most work still involves working with other people in the same setting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as, as we talked about before, it's maybe getting more granular and there's more remote opportunities. Um, but most people, you know, have their professional environment that in, in a way that involves other people and working together in real life. And so learning in real life, learning these skills um, in real life, I think prepares people in a big way. It's also very motivating to know that you're coming into a real place in a classroom yeah. with other students, with an instructor, rather than saying, all right, I, at X time, I have to log onto my computer to take this class. You know, there's something very powerful about that in in real life experience. Yeah, for sure. So we, we want to be respectful of your time. So the last question we always ask on these interviews is what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? People to be more effective. Let's see. Um, all right. In no particular order, uh, be very uh, rigorous and diligent about surrounding yourself with people who elevate you, with people who you respect, people you admire, with people who you believe in and you believe are a positive force in your life, in your career. That applies to friends, that applies to significant others, that applies to colleagues, that applies to people that you want to hire. Um, you know, I think this idea of, of the average you know, you were the average of the five or 10 yeah, people closest to you, right? Um, I think it's a very real thing, you know? And so, um, you know, it's easy, especially living in a city, it's easy to just have friendships and, and acquaintanceships um, be, uh, you know, just kind of acts of acts of convenience. Um, but but really being very, very thoughtful about who you surround yourself, who you spend time with, um, the people that you, you engage with and spend time with and converse with and work with. Uh, I, I kind of put that in the, think about that in a similar way as, you know, we're, we're thoughtful about what we eat in today's world, right? Try to eat healthy, um, not put, you know, not put garbage in, you know, because that's going to impact your mind and your body and, and your your output, right? Um, when it comes to people, you want to do the same, you know, you, you want people who are going to make you a better person. Um, and if you surround yourself with those kind of people, uh, then you will become a better person. That's one. Um, let's see. Number two is, is I think every, every, to be human is to create. Every human is a creator. Um, you know, there's this idea in, in uh, maybe like in fourth or fifth grade where we go from everyone in every student Every kid is an artist. Everyone takes art class, right? All through MA elementary school. Then maybe get to middle school and like art class maybe isn't required or it's an elective now. And most, then there's this shift where most kids now are not artists and they're they're told like, hey, well, you're not an artist. And there's a certain group of kids, the weird kids maybe who they're like, yes, they're artists and they get to be artists. Um, and it's so sad because it means that like the vast majority of us as we go through school uh, kind of are told that we're not artists and that we can't be artists and that's not what we're meant to be. And then, you know, this idea, well, artists don't make any money, don't do that as a career path. Um, I think that's absurd. We should all be making art. We should all be creating, whether you do it for money or not. Hopefully, you know, it's something you don't have to do for money, you know, that it's you can just be a passion. Um, but I think what art means and what being a creative or being a creator means uh, is so much larger than just thinking about painting or drawing or sculpture or what have you. Um, I mean, being a, being an entrepreneur is, is you know, you, you are literally a creator of products and businesses. Um you know, there's a whole variety of ways to, to do that. But I think everyone should should try to tap into whether they're doing it for money and they do it on the side as a hobby or just a love. Tap into that creative side um, and and figure out what does it mean to create. It could be creating relationships. It could be, you know, creating, um, you know, 
beautiful moments uh, in your life with friends or family, you know, but that's, that I think is a very visceral part of being human. Um, and I think that some of the happiest people that I've seen make sure that they allocate the time and the, the temporal and mental bandwidth uh, to make sure that they spend a little bit of time, time creating every week because it's, it's very much good for the soul. Um, and then, and then third, let's see, let's be more effective. Um, hmm. I would say third is try to have try to try to have um, conversations with people uh, that are that are especially people that you you trust and that you care about and care about you. Try to have is try to have conversations that are honest and that are earnest and that cut through the small talk. You know, life is only so long, and um, you think about the moments that you spend with the people that you care about. Um, cut through the small talk. Cut through the chit chat. Have conversations that matter, and sometimes that means having difficult conversations. And this is something that you know I've been learning about and thinking a lot about in the last year or so. Um, I think I tend to kind of naturally uh, maybe avoid confrontations or confrontational conversations. And it takes more effort and more work to kind of like have those confrontational moments. Um, and so a good way to think about it is, is rather than thinking about it as confrontations, thinking about them, think about them as conversations of significance, um, where you can actually make progress in your relationship with the other person and you can both learn something. You can both move your relationship forward or someone can realize something that they hadn't before. Because if you care about someone, if someone is a friend or family member or a teammate or a colleague or what have you, or a significant other, um, don't waste your time by talking about, uh, by, by, by beating around the bush. You know, if there's a conversation that needs to happen for your benefit or both or their benefit, or both of your benefit, um, have it and it's, it'll be worthwhile and you'll feel good about it. You know, nothing, the, 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 the most, um, the most meaningful life in things, or sorry, the most meaningful things in life, uh, are, tend to have some challenge to them, tend to not be easy, but that's what makes life worthwhile. You know, that's the difference between, between a meaningful life and a pleasurable life, right? A pleasurable life or just a purely happy life might be easy. It might be fun, but it's not going to be rigorous. A meaningful life, I think is all about, you know, pursuing journeys and and uh, facing fears and and overcoming challenges that are truly worthwhile and that give you greater insight into yourself and into the universe. And when you emerge from those challenges, you feel good that you pursued them and you feel that you've accomplished something and that you you got some substance out of that, you know, because life is, is light and dark and a, a truly meaningful life involves, you know, going through both and um, and pursuing the light, but know that, that uh, you know, wandering and, 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 and being diligent and focused and still walking through the dark uh, to make it through the light is is all part of the journey. There's a great quote that nothing great comes with an instruction manual. <laughs> so no. those are awesome. That's probably one of the best top three pieces. That was really, really good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you yeah. so much. Where uh, can people find out more about yeah. you and what you're working on? Sure. Um, so let's see. So General Assembly uh, is, is ga.co. Um, Daybreaker is daybreaker.com. Um, and then, as I said, I'm also advising a few startups and working on a few new entrepreneurial endeavors, which will be coming to light soon. What about um, the, the furniture company? What's the yeah, so the ZZ Driggs. ZZ Driggs. ZZ Driggs.com. Common, and then there was also one other, which I got here too. Common.com. Yep. Um, which is not the rapper. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then Fluent City yep, is uh, the education company at fluentcity.com. And then, in terms of following, following me and, and um, you know, a future upcoming exploits or endeavors or, uh, you know, lessons or things that are, that are, um, I'm thinking about or working on. Um, I'm basically at Brimer, B-R-I-M-E-R, on pretty much most social networks, Facebook, Instagram, that kind of thing. Um, awesome. So, yeah, thank you for having me. Want to create more positive leverage in your life? Visit www.getleverage.com to access additional interviews, our blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every week. 